You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick watch and discuss a drive-in double feature, consisting of horror films, spy films, exploitation movies, erotic thrillers, sex comedies, and the like. Our ultimate goal is to determine if these two movies, randomly selected from a list of over 1,600, would make for a good drive-in double feature. We will be going through the plots of these movies in detail, so if you're concerned about spoilers, feel free to check them out before listening to us, and we'll be sure to point out if and when these films are available on various streaming services. Be sure to follow us on Twitter for any updates, that's at driveinpodcast, no underscores, hyphens, or spaces, and let's get started. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim! Okay, Jim, so this time we return to Camp Crystal Lake with Friday the 13th Part 2, and we're following that up with The Abominable Dr. Fives, a British (laughs) horror comedy starring the great Vincent Price. The only reason he's famous is because of Michael Jackson, right? Oh, I completely forgot about that. (laughs) I just, no, when I think Vincent Price, I think The Ten Commandments. Yeah, I. To be honest, I think <laughs> he's like a slave driver. He's got like thirty seconds of screen time in that one. <laughs> I think of him and Scooby Doo. What? Oh no. Yeah. Poor he's Vincent probably Price. in the Batman TV series too, because that was like the first big like cameo heavy kind of thing. He's got to be right. He probably sticks out of a window there at some point. <laughs> Speaking of sticking out of windows, or in this case, breaking through them, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. 1981, it's directed by Steve Miner, who had some kind of credit on the first Friday the 13th. He's like assistant director, associate producer. He's, you know, he's something. But he directed this. He directed Friday the 13th Part 3. He later went on to direct Halloween H2O. I think he directed Lake Placid as well, that killer alligator movie. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, So a wonderful resume, obviously. So this movie, before we really jump into the plot, And, uh, you know, not to spoil anything, but it's pretty much the same thing as the first one, just slightly different. But (laughs) some of the biggest differences are just the production value. And by the way, I looked it up. Vincent Price played Egghead in the Batman series. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's not not doing the cameos. He's playing a character. I forgot about that. (laughs) The first Friday the 13th movie was made for about $600,000. This is more like $1.25 million, so a little bit more than double. Oh, wow. It's still shot in the woods, but I think you'll agree it looks a little more professional, less amateurish. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I feel like, was the original Camp Crystal Lake a set or was it actually a rundown camp? Yeah, that was, it was a camp. I don't don't know how rundown it was. I know there's that one building that they're kind of, well, yeah, no, it was fairly, the buildings they shot in were kind of rundown, but no, that was an active camp at the time. Oh, okay. And then this one, too, maybe the same thing? I'm not really sure. So the movie opens about two months after the events of the first one. And if you don't remember what happened in the first one, don't <laughs> worry. This is one of those Rocky-type series where we, for the first few movies anyways, we start out with a recap of the previous movie. <laughs> But this one is, I don't want to say it's integrated into the scene, but it's not, it doesn't literally just start. There is a scene going on that this interrupts, which is kind of weird. But what what happens is Jason is wandering through some suburban town. We see only like the legs down. And in this suburban town lives Alice, a.k.a. Adrian King, the final girl from the first movie. She's having like a nightmare flashback to 
the original, which is where we get the scene of her decapitating Mrs. Voorhees. And then she's also talking on the phone with her mom. She's making tea. She's doing something with the cat because the cat shows up for, you know, a jump scare. <laughs> I don't know if that started with Alien, but Alien's the most famous famous example. It shows up everywhere, though. It's always cats. <laughs> Never dogs. Cats are just inherently sneaky, though. <laughs> you know, yeah, like dogs, yeah. dogs are more <laughs> blunt and loud and stupid. Cats are... Yeah, cat, cats, cats want to scratch you, you know? Cats want to bite you. Dogs don't. They want to lick you. So Alice opens the refrigerator at one point, screams when she sees Mrs. Voorhees' decapitated head, and then Jason grabs her and stabs her with an ice pick. It's brutal. Oh, yeah. it's uh, This is a pretty effective kill. One of the better bloodless ones in the series, because we're accustomed to seeing a lot more blood. We don't see any here, except for the head in the fridge which looks a little paper mache-y mm-hmm. but so the the thing we have to talk about with this scene because obviously adrian king shows up for one scene gets killed off it's kind of unfortunate you you kind of want to see a recurring character or, or you don't want to see a character that you like who survives in the previous movie just kind of show back up and get killed off early on whether it's this or nightmare on elm street 4 or I was going to say the beginning of this was exactly like the beginning of the second Kingsman movie. Half the characters you knew died right away. (laughs) I'm not 100% sure if it was originally written like this. I mean, they might have whipped up the script in the weekend. I don't really know. But part of me thinks they wanted to get Adrian King maybe for, if not the lead role, at least a bigger role than this. But she kind of gave up on acting around this time because she had a stalker. Oh, no. Like, following her after the release of that first movie and almost killed her. I think had a gun pointed at her at one point. So oh she's kind of like, I don't want to do this shit anymore. And so, yeah, so I don't they blame bring her. her back for a scene where she gets stalked and killed. <laughs> it seems a little tasteless. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, you, you will find Adrian King if you, look, if you were to look her up on IMDb because she didn't really make... I don't want to say, I want to say she didn't really make any significant movies after this, but she'll show up in like all over IMDb as like additional voice stuff on like big movies, like I think Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I think, I think what happens is like, I don't know, it might be like one of those things where when they're doing like a TV edit and they need to change a line of dialogue or whatever, but they don't go and get Karen Allen or Harrison Ford or whoever, mm-hmm. they just go and get adrian king <laughs> people who are in hollywood who are cheaper I, I think it could be a scenario like that i don't know well poor lady either way poor lady so five years after this we meet the first two of our new characters and this is jeff and sandra mm-hmm. and they're arriving in town but they don't exactly know where where to go so they go over use a payphone and then see that the truck's being towed so they chase it down and find that it's being towed by the guy that they're trying to meet ted who is one of the weirdest looking people you've like ever seen. He's just like, he's incredibly lanky. He looks like a clown. And and obviously he's our comic relief character. He's, um, I think it was Ned in the first movie. Oh this guy, basically God. the same thing. Ned and Ted. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Ned was the one who almost murdered someone with a bow and arrow. I can't remember what else he did. Oh, he, he dressed up like a Native American and <laughs> offended an entire race of people at one point. <laughs> Uh, but this is i like how we introduced that here with ted because we see him doing something that's pretty dickish but also like kind of funny yeah 
So Ted, Jeff, and Sandra are on their way to a counselor training center where Ted is like the second or third in command, and one of either Jeff or Sandra is like going to be like next below him. I don't know. But they uh, end up talking about the legend of Camp Crystal Lake or Camp Blood when Sandra finds the sign for Camp Crystal Lake, and Ted mentions like, oh yeah, you know, that it was on the same lake that we're on. And Sandra's interested, but Ted says like, yeah, we're not going to talk about it now. We meet most of the rest of our characters then at like a preliminary meeting here at the Camp Counselor Training Center. Our leader is Paul, and uh, I mentioned Ted being second or third in command. There's also Mark, who's in the wheelchair. <laughs> there's there's a lot of characters here. There's Vicky, who doesn't at this point doesn't really have anything special to make her stand out. Eventually, yeah, which... she starts heavily flirting with Mark, so that's, like, her character thing, right? That's not the really attractive one. No, yes. Yeah, so we meet Terry, who's the butt girl. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of, yeah. This is an incredible <laughs> scene where we just we just start with a close-up on her ass. She's wearing, like, very, very short shorts and a very short, cut-off Mickey Mouse shirt where there's, like, most of her belly is visible. And she's got, like, short hair, which she's kind of working it, but not. It's the pixie cut, man. It's the pixie cut. Yeah, It'll do it. Her ass gets its own close-up here. And <laughs> <laughs> the real star of the movie. Yeah, no, pretty much. And then uh, Slingshot, uh, some asshole, uh, hits her in the ass with a little rock or a pebble. And then he walks out of the bushes and winks at her. And this is, well, this is Terry, the butt girl, played by Kirsten Baker, the star of the 1979 film Gas Pump Girls can't recommend that one enough and then uh, scott played by russell todd who is in i've actually seen him in like three or four things he's in chopping mall for sure i think he he's in he knows you're alone which is tom hanks's first movie oh it's it's some, some terrible slasher movie yeah he's in that that character of scott might be the character who's in this movie the least and who has of like literally well, nothing well, to do i mean <laughs> well, let me finish because because we've got about ten or twelve more like oh, yeah. <laughs> extras who yeah. don't say anything or do anything. They don't get names. I wasn't even thinking of them. <laughs> of our main characters, we've got Paul, Ted, Jeff, Sandra, Todd, Terry, Vicky, Mark, and then Ginny shows up. Ginny shows up in her Volkswagen Beetle convertible. Paul goes to talk to her, and it's revealed that those two are dating. And he's upset with her because she's showed up late, of course, but she said she had car trouble and she tried to call, but the phones were down. So that is our main group of characters. Ginny, Paul, Todd, Ted, Vicky, Mark, Jeff, Sandra. Am I missing anyone? Uh, I'm going to say Oh, Muffin no. the Dog. That's oh, Muffin. Muffin the Dog. That's, um... The little shih tzu or whatever Terry's. it is. Yeah. Is this the movie that the game is in part based on? No, that... Well, I mean, yes, but in that game... The first five movies all have maps on there that are very faithfully recreated. Ah. This location, this main lodge, the Counselor Training Center, is one of the maps. Because, I, I mean, we can talk about the sweater thing later, too, because that, that'll come Well, up. yeah, 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 which is, that, that, that's what I was thinking of specifically. Okay, so, so to kill Jason in the game, they basically combine the endings of this one and Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Hmm. It's kind of a marriage of those two endings. But anyways, so at night, they all gather around the campfire, including some of the extras, and Paul shares the story of Jason. He, I like this scene a lot. He, he's got a good, creepy ghost story campfire delivery. 
Mm-hmm. He's really good because, and and this is also important because it makes things in this movie make sense. It does not make sense if you actually pair it with the first one because in order for the first one to make sense, Jason has to be dead because that's why Mrs. Voorhees seeks revenge. But this one, they kind of gloss over that. And supposedly Jason, as a young-ish boy, saw Mrs. Voorhees get decapitated by Alice. Hence, he wanted revenge on Alice. And they said Alice disappeared two months later, but there was a lot of blood in her home. They said Don't, no one found her, no one knows what happened, and that that was five years ago. Then Ted jumps out at everybody with a stupid mask, and, you know, that's their... That was the whole point of the story. I mean, <laughs> in the context for, for these characters, for the movie, it has, it's just expository. But Paul's like, okay, you know, that we're done with, with the Jason shit. That stuff's never going to be brought up again. I don't want to hear you talking about it or anything. <laughs> so later, Ginny and Paul are making out and about to have sex when Crazy Ralph... <laughs> crazy ralph our favorite character from the first one shows up this actually isn't the first time we see him in the movie because he does warn jeff and sandra when they're at the payphone this guy's got one thing to talk about and that's that you guys are fucked if you go here right that's that's all he talks about he's got one thing to talk about and one outfit apparently but anyways he's just kind of lurking around in the woods which which i always thought was funny this is the second time he showed up to a location where he told everyone not to go like he's breaking his cardinal rule here and so obviously he gets killed here and it's pretty fun he gets we had trouble with this word in a previous movie garroted garroted yeah i i would say garroted but i'm not sure how it's pronounced all right he gets pat garroted and billy the kid <laughs> against like a telephone pole or a tree or something yeah and so he's he's out that's that's kind of all that happens that night the next day they're all doing their thing they're jogging then they're hanging out at the beach later so it's a combination of things they actually have to do for work and then also just hanging around and that's when jeff and sandra decide to sneak out and go look for camp crystal lake and this is also when muffin the dog again the little shih tzu ends up coming across jason and there's a really fun edit here because muffin comes up to jason's feet so far all we've seen of jason is like knee down mm-hmm. he's, he's wearing denim we know that much <laughs> and then we've also seen a little bit of the hand obviously with the ice pick stabbing and the garroting but anyways muffin shows up there and looks up at jason and then it cuts to ted cooking hot dogs on the grill <laughs> yeah <laughs> which, which that is that's a very fun edit i like that one a lot but nearing Camp Crystal Lake, Jeff and Sandra find a dead dog, which appears to be Muffin, and probably is Muffin. It gets a little confusing at the end of the movie, but like, okay, so Muffin is torn torn apart. And then before they can get any further, they're pulled aside by a cop who takes them back to Paul. Paul's not too upset, even though he's like, yeah, we're not supposed to be doing anything over that. That area is condemned, but he doesn't really care. And as the cop leaves, he sees Jason running through the woods. <laughs> so anyone who says Jason never runs, he did in the first few movies. He hopped across that road like a deer, I tell you. Anyways, the cop gets out and chases after him, ends up stumbling upon Jason's shack. He walks in. It's filthy, but we don't see a whole lot of it. He enters a room, looks horrified at something that we don't see, and I really like that. This movie does this a couple times with uh, two different things where we we know something's horrifying or disgusting, but we don't see it until later in the movie. Mm -hmm. And as he's looking in shock, he gets the hammer claw to the back of his head, and he's out. 
So after dinner, people are deciding that, hey, we can go out to town, get drunk. This is like the last time we'll be able to do it for a while. So everyone but Mark, again, wheelchair, Vicky, (laughs) guy or woman into the wheelchair guy, Jeff and Sandra, because they're in trouble, and then Terry, and then also Scott, because Scott wants to hit on Terry some more. So they all stay back. Everyone else goes. Everyone else goes to get drunk. And at the bar, Ted, Ginny, and Paul, who are the only named characters who go to the bar. Everyone else is just an extra. <laughs> they're they're discussing the legend of Jason. Ginny is trying to think that, like, oh, maybe it's more than a legend. Maybe there's something to it. And then she starts to think of, like, things from Jason's perspective. It was mentioned earlier in the movie that she's majoring in child psychology. Yeah. So hence her kind of interest in this. Because she's <laughs> like, listen, Jason was a boy who only knew his mother, never went to school, never had any friends, never met anyone else. If he sees his mother get killed because she loves him, what would he do? He would, like, snap. He Like, he wouldn't understand the meaning of death. He wouldn't know what to do. And she ends up, I guess, being right, mm-hmm. even though this is just theorizing. But while all this is going on, Terry, well, Ter- Terry stays behind at the camp because she's looking for Muffin, and maybe Muffin will show up. But then she just, I guess, gives up on that and goes skinny dipping. <laughs> I know. I know. I like, how fast, I like how fast she gave up on that. She was like, I'm going to stay around, see if Muffin shows up. Oh, there's a lake. I guess I'll take my clothes off. Yeah. No, this, this movie's a lot more shameless in its nudity than the first one. The first one, there wasn't really much nudity. There was, there was like a sex scene that honestly was way too passionate for a cheesy, sleazy horror slasher movie. But this one, <laughs> it's just like, fuck it. We'll have a woman skinny dipping. She's like alone, too. Why would you ever do this? <laughs> But arguably the most attractive woman in the entire series. She's up there. I Yeah, I'd agree. There's a couple that compare from the fourth one. One or two that compare from the seventh one, I think, even. I'm thinking of that kind of um, the blonde woman in that. Oh, the uh, remake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the remake is, is it's a little excessive. No. <laughs> yeah, she's probably my number one. <laughs> Anyways, um, so while she's skinny dipping or while she's exiting the lake, this is when Scott major perv that he is just steals her clothes and just runs off <laughs> yeah yeah what a dick and then he steps in i'll call it a bear trap but i'm gonna have to specify because it's just a rope that's hanging from a tree and when you step on it it tightens and then pulls him up <laughs> so so he's hanging there and he's begging terry to cut him down and he's like okay i'll give you back your clothes i'll stop annoying you just please help me so she runs off to find something to cut him down and I like this scene. It's just like really, it's just tense, even though there's mm-hmm. nothing really happening when she's like kind of searching through that little cabin or whatever. Yeah. But while she's looking for something to help him, Jason shows up with a machete and slits Scott's throat. Although he does it with the dull end of the machete. Yeah. I don't know if you caught that. I yeah, did, yeah. It's, it, it's a fun throat slit, but that kind of ruins it for me. I don't know how no one noticed that on set. There's also a shot later when Jason goes to uh, stab somebody, but he's like holding the knife upside down for some reason. Did you catch that too like i yeah oh yeah yeah but that's also like if i mean if you stab the person forward that that wouldn't really matter would yeah it? i guess i i guess so. well i don't know because the... if, if you're trying to cut carrots yes you're holding it upside <laughs> down but if you're just stabbing like straight forward i feel like that wouldn't make a difference i know i know what scene you're talking about but anyways jeff and sandra go to have sex mark and vicky just flirt very aggressively well really <laughs> vicky's the aggressive one here yeah, it's almost like Mark's like, I'm in a wheelchair, just you know, like, leave me alone. Okay, yeah, you're right. You, you are cute. I agree with you. Yeah, and, and Vicky proposes spending the night together, 
and then she's going to go get ready. So Terry stumbles. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Terry stumbles upon Scott's dead body, screams, and then is, in theory, attacked. Is something She just screams, kind of looking at the camera. Something's coming at her, we guess. Mm-hmm. As Vicky is getting ready, Mark wanders outside because he thinks he hears something. And then in probably the best scene of the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a scene that also makes no sense, he gets the machete to the face, which either is thrown at him or Jason came up behind him really, really quick because we had gotten plenty of shots looking at Mark's face and yeah. there's nothing behind him. <laughs> or yeah. he comes out maybe from the right. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but the bottom line is <laughs> we got a machete to the face and the dude in the wheelchair. <laughs> and then the wheelchair goes down just an endless series of steps. <laughs> it's so it's brutal. so gratuitous. Oh, it really is. It's like I felt so bad for him. Because he gets that machete in the face and rolls off the porch. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. And it just cuts to that endless staircase. He's like banging it's, off the railing. It just railings. keeps going. <laughs> yeah. It's so great. It's, uh, <laughs> and it's also, this is something that like in the 80s, and there, there's a, there's something kind of like this in Friday the 13th Part 3. Not like a similar kill to this, but a similar like, oh, he's in a wheelchair. That means he won't die kind of thing. But like, no, in the <laughs> 80s, like they didn't they didn't care. They didn't care if you're in a wheelchair, if you're pregnant, if you're if you were gay, it doesn't matter. You're dying. <laughs> and there's something kind of refreshing about that. Yeah, and because I, I felt really bad, to be honest, for Mark, because he was like the most normal character who also didn't do anything like wrong. He, there well, was none no of trespassing them do anything. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say none of them. I mean, Jeff and Sandra kind of trespass, and, and then Jeff also has sex with a 17-year-old because S- S- Sandra is underage. The actress <laughs> playing her is underage oh, in this no. movie. So, okay, maybe they had to die. But, like, Vicky, <laughs> what what did Vicky do wrong? Yeah, probably nothing. Oh, she picked out an I awful I mean, I parent. think we can all agree Scott needed to go. Scott needed to go. I will say so she... Scott's a major pervert. He got you rejected know. by the dog. <laughs> he did, yeah. Sorry, what's what's your name again? Uh, Vicky? No. Vicky. Which one? Yeah. She picked out an awful pair of granny panties when she was trying to spruce it up. Yes, she did. They were like brown. Yeah, and I was like, oh, you deserve to die. Maybe it's the lighting, but yeah, they were they those are not flattering, honey. (laughs) Also, she does break the rules at one point in the the rules established by Paul in that commencement scene. He says, Okay, you know, there's bears around here, so you gotta be careful. Be hygienic, but also don't wear perfume. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She does put on perfume. So maybe if Jason doesn't get her, maybe the bears would. <laughs> Jason's actually just a park ranger. You know, he, like, he doesn't want people to go well, swimming at I night. Mean, he's, he, yeah, that's he's he's a park ranger with he's no more aggressive than your average police officer in his tactics, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know lots of police. There's officers just a little who... bit of performance art to his killing. Yeah, I was going to say, that you know, I, I, that I feel like you don't get with police officers. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because uh, I often see police officers walking around with machetes and clubbing uh, disabled people with them. But well, uh, no, yeah, see, I'm, I'm not even necessarily thinking the, literally the weapons he's using. <laughs> I'm thinking of like how he hides the bodies in perfect ways for them to appear when someone's trying to escape <laughs> him like that aspect yeah. of it. <laughs> that's that's the real performance art. I mean, there's there's a performance art in some of the creativity, which. <laughs> We might, well, we might as well get into it because this is one of the most... I, I can't say creative because it's basically stolen directly from a movie, but one of the most... The kills with the most sort of... The most English on it, if you know what I mean. It's just... it. This He's making a statement with this kill. 
and that's when he wanders in and kills Jeff and Sandra. Jeff is in bed on top of Sandra at the time. He has a spear, which I guess he probably made. I was I was watching this movie, and I'm thinking, can you just buy spears? Like, we're... he picked up the spear from the bottom of the stairs. That's uh, right. Yeah, it was it was uh, Ted, Ted was playing with that it. when yeah. he yeah because Ted had the mask, Ted had a spear, so Ted bought a spear somewhere. <laughs> made the entire again. Yeah, I, don't I think know. so. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways. So he stabs the two of them in one fell swoop. The spear goes through both of them and then through into the below the bed into the ground. And this is fun. We don't see that much of it because it's this was like the one kill that they had to cut around pretty heavily to um, satisfy the MPAA. Because there are, like, you can find images of it, even, like, the back of DVDs and VHSs and stuff, and you see that there is more to this kill, that you saw the two of them with the spear going through them. It's a really quick cut, but you definitely get that sense of oh, no, it's brutality still works. to I, it, I, you know? Yeah, it still, it still works. I don't mind it. It's just, like, it would be kind of nice to see a little bit more, but we don't need it. Yeah. I just, like, when I saw it, I thought, oh, man, they're going to be skewered. That's terrible. That's awful. And then it happened. I was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's pretty great. It's also, I mentioned, uh, the elephant in the room is that this is quote-unquote a ripoff of the movie A Bay of Blood by director Mario Bava in 1971 or 72. Same exact thing happens in that movie. And I've seen, like, Steve Miner or maybe the writer of this movie or whoever was talking about, like, you know, they weren't actually familiar with that movie, which is easy enough to believe. I mean, it's an early 70s slasher slash Jallo movie. I mean, like, yeah, your average American wouldn't have known that. And I don't get the sense that, like, Steve Miner is, like, one of those Eli Roth or Quentin Tarantino where guys where they've seen every horror movie ever made kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or like uh, Rob Zombie even. So, I mean, maybe they didn't see it. But the, the, the fishy part to me is that what precedes this is the fantastic machete to the face wheelchair down the stairs scene. Which I'm not going to say the wheelchair down the stairs is a ripoff of anything in a movie. <laughs> it, it has its sort of, I guess the point of reference would be Eisenstein's The Battle, Battleship Potemkin. The famous stair sequence in that movie, of course. But no, um, I, I kid, obviously. But <laughs> I was gonna say, I don't. So I have to point, <laughs> I, not, you don't know what I'm talking about, so I have to point that out. Well, I was gonna say, <laughs> I've seen that movie. I, I, I don't. Know oh yeah, no, there's a scene. Well, it's not a wheelchair, but it's a baby carriage going down the stairs mm. while like people are getting shot or died. I can't remember. I've I saw that movie once. It's also done in The Untouchables. The scene in the Chicago train station. Again, baby carriage going down the stairs, slow motion, everybody shooting at each other. And I, uh, Kevin Costner or maybe Andy Garcia is trying to save the baby carriage, too. <laughs> That's a pretty notable homage. But anyways, so screw the babies, screw the baby carriages. The This um, scene, so what precedes the, in A Bay of Blood, what precedes the two people being skewered together in bed while having sex, what precedes that is a bill hook to a dude's face. Hmm. That's basically exactly what we have here. I mean, yes, wheelchair stairs is like the big difference, but so it's so it's like almost like two kills that like consecutively together are like doing one would be like okay, like a machete to the face. Obviously, you have a, you have a killer in your movie who has a machete. Someone's getting that machete to the face. Like that's yeah. just I mean, but it's just that 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 both of them are there. It's just a little a little suspicious. That's pretty sus. Anyways, back to this movie. So back at the bar. It's raining pretty heavily at this point, which, I mean, it's been raining for a while. Haven't pointed that out yet. You can almost guarantee rain in your Friday the 13th climax, near near your climax, because obviously, for dramatic purposes, 
<laughs> but uh, at the bar, Ginny and Paul decide to go back, and Ted stays. Theoretically, all the extras stay because we don't see them at this point. They don't, they don't come back. So as Paul and Ginny go to the go to her car, which I thought this was super irresponsible. First of all, they just drank a bunch and they're driving. I mean, that, that, I mean that's a no. <laughs> Secondly, though, they make a point of saying earlier when they all go out to the bar, because they bring about about like eight or ten extras, however many extras are at this counselor training center. Mm-hmm. But they split it between two cars. And yeah. I mean, like, sure, it's a Volkswagen <laughs> Beetle. It's probably should only fit two, but you should probably at least get a third, maybe even a fourth person in there just to have room in your truck. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, the two of them drive home drunk. Don't kill anyone that we know of. It's actually right before they arrive back at the camp that Vicky comes back to the main building, is looking around for everybody, can't find anyone, and goes up to the bedroom where Jeff and Sandra were and pulls over the sheets over. And this is our first glimpse of Jason's face. He's wearing, I don't know if it's like a, pill, uh, a pillowcase or a potato sack. I think it's a yeah, potato sack. That's what it looks like, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's only got one eye hole for some reason. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> it's, which supposedly was a giant pain in the ass for the actors, as you can, I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> but anyways, Jason gets out of bed and, and pulls out the knife, and I assume this was what you're talking about, the upside down upside Absolutely, down yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a really fun shot when Vicky is cowering in the corner near Jeff's dead body, mm-hmm. and the shot kind of moves from the focus on the knife to the focus on Vicky because the shot's like near the camera is near Jason's head or it's like mounted on his shoulder at this point it's a really fun shot the stab happens below frame so we don't see it but effective scene nonetheless yeah I agree she plays terrified really really well oh yeah Uh, one of the maybe the best scream in this movie so Paul and Ginny come in they're looking for everybody they don't know what's going on they find blood all over the bed but they're still like not sure what's and I'm thinking like okay come on like we, yeah. we had this in the first movie too because they find the bloody axe in the bed and they're, they're just like what and I'm like no at this point you should be panicking I, I gave it a pass with the first movie <laughs> <laughs> if this keeps happening throughout the series I'm gonna get pissed I was hoping Paul would say jeez I hope this doesn't attract bears yeah oh yeah <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I don't think bears are sharks. <laughs> well, I mean, what, I don't think you... a bear can smell blood from miles away. Maybe well, apparently, can. I don't know. Well, apparently, what what was it? I was at a, uh, a national park about a year and a half ago with my partner, and this ranger was like, we've got a lot of bears here this time of year. Any women, if you're on your uh, menstrual cycle, just be wary. That attracts bears. Well, yeah, Paul, Maybe they Paul are did sharks. say something like that. Then the power goes out, except the power doesn't really go out it because it's the, the light is still on in the kitchen. So I, there's like some <laughs> line about, like, oh, it's, it must be a problem with the fuse. But really, power out because creepy. Jason, who's been inside the entire time, attacks Paul. They fight as Ginny just kind of like walks away. <laughs> she, yeah, she could she just probably be helpful here. <laughs> but Jason, after defeating Paul, comes after her and she sneaks out, closes the door real quick. And as she holds the door open, she reaches for a window to try and like open it to sneak out there. And then Jason's arm comes through that window, which I, I love that scene. It's so great. It's, it's such a wonderful scare. So she she ends up jumping out the window in the kitchen and then running. She gets into her car and it won't start, which I know what you're thinking. Oh, dumb cliche. And I'm like, yes, it's a dumb cliche, but at least it was set up in this movie. Yeah. Well, because when she first arrives, she arrives because she arrives late because the car wasn't working right. I think she said her car was sick. 
I think she has that yeah, line. Yeah. And then Paul fiddles with it for a bit because it couldn't start. And then even when they're leaving the bar, Paul says something like, oh, I really hope this car's okay. I hope it'll start. And I'm like, okay, good. Keep reminding us of that so it pays off later. That's great. This is, this is <laughs> yeah. perfect. Just like the child psychology, how that comes back later. Like, it's not, I, I'm not acting like this is like a brilliant script or anything like that, but just so many dumb, cheap horror slasher movies don't even take the time to set up things like that. A car will just not start because cliche, you know, things like that. Yeah. I almost wish they set up Mark rolling backwards down the stairs. Like, oh, look at this staircase. That's pretty long. Be careful, Mark. You're in a wheelchair. And yeah, then... <laughs> no, I, I actually like, because that scene is so ridiculous. I actually like that up until he's going down the stairs, you have no reason to believe there are thousands of stairs right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you have no like reason... He basically just falls off a cliff that you didn't know was there. Yeah, he falls off a cliff that somebody put stairs on. <laughs> That's... Yeah, because it's so steep. It's like the exorcist stairs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can we get an edit of Mark rolling backwards down the exorcist stairs? <laughs> That'd be great. You know, I have I have a picture of me falling down those stairs, the exorcist stairs. I think you sent it to me. It's great. So Ginny's car doesn't start. Jason, with a pitchfork, cuts through the um, the hood. Is that what it's called? Like the hood? The, 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 top. the Freddy Krueger sweater striped thing? Because it's a convertible. Yeah, the convertible <laughs> yeah. top. So she gets out of there, runs, she hides in the trees, kicks Jason in the nuts when he runs by, which is a little little goofy. A little Three Stooges-esque for this tense climax, but it's fine. <laughs> this scene goes on for a while. She ends up hiding in a cabin. She hides under the bed. Jason comes in, and he's looking for her, but he doesn't see her under the bed, obviously. And then the rat crawls near her face, <laughs> and then she pees. Yeah. It's very strange, because... I mean, it's almost like someone attached like a hose to her pants or something because there's no way there should be that much coming out by her feet. (laughs) Yeah, by her ankles. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yes, exactly. And and Jason kind of hears it and he turns around and he's like, okay, something's still going on here. But she looks and she doesn't see Jason's feet anywhere. So she thinks it's okay to get out. And the reason she doesn't see his feet is because he's standing on a chair for some reason. (laughs) Which I like this because, like, it's kind of clever. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you want to get her to think the coast is clear, sure, just stand somewhere where your feet can't be seen. That makes sense. But also, like, why didn't he just check the bed? Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, why didn't he He do the Jason thing of just stabbing something through the bed? Stab through it. I mean, anyways. Yeah. he's, He's ready to stab her with his pitchfork. But then the chair breaks. And then she gets the chainsaw out of the closet, which again was set up she had used the chainsaw she had put it away so she knew where it was this is probably my second favorite scene of the movie okay well well my third favorite because terry skinny dipping obviously but this is my third favorite (laughs) scene because you and i have talked about this i don't know if you remember but people don't realize how awful and how useless the chainsaw is as a weapon yeah yeah I, in this movie shows how awful and useless it is as a weapon because she takes it to him and his his pitchfork has broken in half at this point when he hit the ground so he's defenseless and the chainsaw hits his forearm and then becomes unchanged dislodged whatever word yeah you're used it's, to. It, 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 it does a kickback i think is not what yeah, it's called which which that's i mean i've never taken a chainsaw to human flesh but i believe that's realistic <laughs> because chainsaws are they're in theory incredibly awesome weapons like a ch- even just the sound of it the chainsaw mm-hmm. it sounds so cool but then even <laughs> if you watch the original texas chainsaw massacre or maybe it's the second one but but you see leatherface going through a door and it takes forever and it's just like a cheap 
<laughs> the thinly layered wooden door that I'm sure they made thinner because you're cutting through it in a movie and it still takes forever to get through it. Like the chainsaw's not that powerful for certain things. And I like that <laughs> the chainsaw just <laughs> she gets three seconds of use out of it. It's great. <laughs> it just fails. <laughs> yeah, it's completely useless. You know, there, I'm, I mean, this movie is 30 years old now. Maybe chainsaw technology has improved, but I don't know. Well, I mean, I, would love... I know a thing or two about Husqvarna chainsaws, but uh, <clears throat> they're pretty good. It's a brand. I don't know. I've never used Well, a this is a Homelite <laughs> brand, whatever that oh is, God. because they, they, you see it written on there. But yeah, no, I was... Um, one time I was at Canadian Tire, I was just looking for cardboard boxes because I was packing up because I was moving. But the boxes were near the chainsaws, and I'm just kind of like <laughs> looking through the chainsaw area. And I'm like looking at like the descriptions on all these brands and stuff, and it's like none of them tell you how many bodies they'll cut through. And like, I feel like, <laughs> is there like a code speak for like shopping for chainsaws? Like when a serial killer goes out looking for chainsaws, is there like some kind of secret code that he can talk to about a salesman? To Dude, find I, I out know what which it is. is going to be the best. I know what it is. Through human flesh. What's that? How fast can I cut through a three foot thick limb? Well, if you're cutting a soft wood, yes, yes, very soft. Uh, how fast can I cut through a large limb with this? Well, it's you know, no, tree that limb. wouldn't work because because really the it's not the skin, it's the bone that you have to worry about. So that, I no, still that's don't true. feel like that would be helpful. Well, you know, my question also about Canadian Tire uh, here was the chain were, were the chainsaws and boxes next to the spears and or hockey sticks? Uh, they were near the exploding light bulbs. I can tell you that. <laughs> Ah, stupid joke. No, but joke. for any of you psychopaths <laughs> who shop for chainsaws, please reach out to us. Let us know your tips and tricks. We are very interested. <laughs> but anyways, um, so the chase <laughs> continues. She runs to another... She just... I mean, she keeps running. She eventually finds herself at Jason's shack, and she hides in there, and she screams when she sees that Jason's still following her. So she locks herself in, and this is the reveal. This is what the cop saw that scared him. Now we get to see it. It's Mrs. Voorhees' head, which is much more decayed than it was when it was in the fridge. It's also Terry's body, which, I mean, Terry's body wasn't there when the cop was there, but mainly it's the head. It's the head with little candles, and there's there's a, a shrine going on there. There's also her mm -hmm. sweaters there, because Jason took that from the grave or something. And then there's also... Terry's body, the cop's body, and is Alice's body in here too? Is there a third body? Uh, I that would make sense, but I don't it, remember I if there, there was. I assume there was. I don't know. Yeah, I, th I think Alice's body's in there too. But anyways, Jason starts breaking through his own door. No concern over resale value for this place, <laughs> and he gets through. And but Ginny has put on Jason's mother's sweater because she's testing out her little child psychology theory on him. And she convincing him she's his mother, or at least reminding him of his mother in some way. Yeah. She's able to convince Jason to kind of, he, he doesn't set the weapon down, but he lowers it. And she keeps saying, like, get on your knees. And then this is when we get a little Betsy Palmer cameo. She shows up for 15 seconds. It just kind of cuts back and forth between Ginny, Amy Steele, and then Betsy Palmer. And then, so she has her machete hidden behind her back, and as Jason's on his knees, she raises it, and then Jason sees his mother's head and is like, wait. And so, so, so he <laughs> fights back. He blocks the machete, and the machete drops to the ground. And then Paul shows up. He's still alive, I guess. 
So those two wrestle again, and I have no idea because, I mean, it took Ginny a long time to get to this shack because we had a lot of, like, cuts to the moon to symbolize that this <laughs> chase has been going on for potentially hours. Well, I don't know, you know how Paul shows up, but good for him. I was going to say, if an out-of-shape police officer can semi-chase Jason through the woods and find the shack. Well, yeah, but yeah, but he didn't come oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah. the good shack point. from the lodge that they were at. He stopped on the road-slash-dirt path and saw Jason. So, I mean, <laughs> oh, that... dear. Oh, wait, no, that's a man. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Paul and Jason fight. And Ginny gets the chainsaw back, and she chops it down, gets it lodged in Jason's left shoulder, and he falls to the ground, presumably dead. The two of them, because Paul's still alive, Paul and Ginny, then, before heading back, decide to look at Jason's face. And again, this is kind of like earlier with the cop in the shack. We don't see it, but they react in disgust. I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's pretty cool. Yeah. So they show up back at, you know, one of their their living quarters, and they start to arm themselves when they hear a noise at the door. Ginny grabs a pitchfork, Paul grabs something, machete probably, a broom, I don't know. <laughs> and then he opens the door, and it's just Muffin, that stupid fucking dog. <laughs> what are we to make of this? Is mu- Was that some other pathetic foo-foo shih tzu that Jason happened to run into? and rip apart and this happened to coincide with muffin's disappearance or are we in another stupid dream and is that how we're ending this movie because then jason without the mask pops up through the window he's it's a really cool look for jason it's it's unlike any other look that they gave him throughout the series he he reminds me of like kind of sloth from the goonies kind of that's exactly what i was gonna say yeah and he's got the long hair but he's only got hair on like one half of his head or something like it's just a weird look it's it's pretty cool but he jumps through in slow motion. He's grabbing Ginny. And then it cuts, and Ginny wakes up being attended to by paramedics. And she asks them, Where is Paul? She asks that a number of times and does not get an answer. So, Jim, what do you think of Friday the 13th, Part 2? I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I liked it more than the first one. I thought that this was kind of like the classic Jason sort of thing, you know, a bunch of horny teens hanging out. And they split up and slowly get killed. Yeah, it was great. I thought, as you said at the beginning, the production quality was a lot better or higher than the first one. And uh, this one, I feel like they paid a lot more attention to kind of artistic shots, I guess. Yeah, I mentioned that knife, the shot where it goes from focusing on the knife to focusing on Vicky in peril. That's, That's a pretty cool shot. There's a few others, but that's the one that stands out to me. One of my favorite shots in this was when Jenny Anything got to Anything with Terry the... skinny dipping, big fan of those shots. Yeah, no, it was when uh, Jenny got to Jason's cabin, his shack, and she kind of thought she was safe. And then you, as she's standing there looking away from the window, you can see through the window Jason is like legging it <laughs> to the shack. Oh, yeah. And that was terrifying. It was great. A lot, of, a lot of cool stuff with shadows early in the movie too. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there was one thing where you see a shadow against the building and you're thinking, oh, is J- it's Jason. Then, no, it's Crazy Ralph. So yeah. this goes yeah. that back that long ago when he was still alive. Yeah, I like this movie, too. I'm, I'm with you on preferring this to the original. I don't think I was until I saw it this most recently, this most recent time. And, I mean, I don't think it's, like, that much better than the first one, but it's a little better. I like the final girl more. I like Ginny more than Alice. 
mm-hmm. like Amy Steele as an actress. I've seen her in April Fool's Day. The other thing that I thought was really neat was how the first Friday the 13th felt. In the first Friday the 13th, we as the audience felt isolated kind of along with the characters just because of the way the camp looked, how far out in the woods it was, how long it took people to get out there by yeah. road. This one, it felt less isolated and kind of more normal. And that might have been because of like the nicer looking buildings in the camp, I guess. And that you see people going into the town and hanging out and having fun. But they still somehow managed to get a sense of that secluded lakeside setting that has become so creepy now for generations. Yeah, and they could have even done more of it, too, had they shown those giant stairs earlier. Because then you realize, oh, they're on a cliff, too. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not really sure why, but it must just come down to production. I will say another thing that I really like about this movie is that I like the kills. I think I like all the kills. Except for, I I guess, uh, um, uh, what's her name? Tara's? Vicky? Well, Terry, Terry, we don't really see. Oh, that's it, yeah, Terry. Vicky's kind of an off-screen thing. I mean, we know what happens, but we don't see it. Scott's throat slit, a little disappointing just because the dull end of the machete (laughs) looks kind of dumb. Yeah. But I mean, it's a throat slit, and it's not as good as the throat slit in the first movie. That's an incredible throat slit. The garroting is always fun. Oh yeah, that's good. But the only one Ice that really stood out for me is always great. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I guess the only death that stood out for me from the first one was the Kevin Bacon death. I think we get an axe to the face. We get an awesome throat oh, slit. Oh, that's what right. Are you talking about Mrs. Voorhees gets fucking beheaded. That's true. You're yeah. You're not. I mean, there's there's a lot of mediocre kills in that one, but the the top tier of that is pretty darn good, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I don't know if we have anything quite as awesome as Kevin Bacon's here. I mean, the wheelchair death is is more awesome, <laughs> but in a different way for different reasons. <laughs> I laughed. <laughs> we've got we've got a lot of just solid solid work here. Anyways, you want to run through my Friday the Thirteenth checklist and see. Yeah, of How course. this movie succeeds as a Friday the 13th movie, yes, because of course. for those of you joining us, I have, I can't remember, is it nine? It's, I don't know, we can kind of blow through it quickly because some of these things are sort of obvious, but. So we've got number one, the sex appeal. Does this movie have it? Yes. Big time. Absolutely. As creepy as it is that Sandra has a, sort of has a sex scene and that actress is like 16 or 17, we get, <laughs> we get, <laughs> it, this is, this movie's all about Terry. Let's, let's face it. I mean, because we get the gratuitous ass close up and then skinny dipping for no reason. It's sh- it's shameless in that way that you like appreciate out of like a sleazy exploitation horror slasher movie. Like I'm not yeah. arguing that this is actually good, but it's just enjoyable. I always well, I- admire that movies like this seem to understand just the lowest basis desires of their audience. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I mean. For the most part, the nudity in this movie is done relatively tastefully. You know, like it's not, it's not like a, a, a the, well, yeah, the, the skinny Friday Thirteenth remake from or whatever. Distance. Yeah, like you don't see that much. The camera's not close up. The camera's close up on her ass when she's wearing shorts, but that's yeah. different. All right, so number two, the kills. We already talked about that. It's good. Number three, and this one, of course, was not a factor in the original. The number three thing that you need to make a good Friday the 13th movie is Jason does awesome things. I think that's lacking here. Yeah, he doesn't really do anything awesome. He does a lot of running and walking. The movie, the series took a while to truly discover who Jason was. I don't think they fully had it until the fourth one. But Jason at this point is just a guy. I mean, he gets kicked in the nuts. <laughs> he uh, he struggles to get through locked doors. Like, he's not, like, an overpowering menace. <laughs> and, I yeah. mean, there's an appeal to that, too. I mean, 
Jason as like a superhero or like, you know, this like indestructible Godzilla type creature. I mean, <laughs> that's not for everybody. I get it. But that to me is what the series is all about or would eventually be all about. The only really cool thing he does, I guess, is the end when he jumps through the window. Yeah. Well, and, and Jason goes through a window in every movie. I'm pretty sure at least one. That's just <laughs> that's his thing. That's his thing. We, we can keep a tally going. Yeah, let's keep a window count. Through. All right. <laughs> Well, we've got two here because he got the hand through the window. Yeah. So I think it's just two. Well, I guess he probably literally goes through a window, but an open window to kill Alice. Because I'm pretty sure that her door yeah. is locked. But, I mean, it do- that doesn't matter. That doesn't count. If we don't see it, it doesn't count. <laughs> and we need, go- we need glass breaking because that's, that's the thing. Did he go through any windows in the first one? No, he's just a little kid who comes out of the water. That's all he does. In oh, the that's first right. You're one. right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally forgot she, what the first was about. I mean, Mrs. Voorhees throws a body or two through windows. All right, so number four, the final girl. We've got a pretty good one here, Ginny. A lot of people would say she's the best final girl in the series. I think she's probably my second favorite, but she's close. I mean, one and two for me are pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really comment because I don't think I've seen... I think I've seen only the shittiest Friday the 13th movies. You've seen movies. the fourth one. You've seen arguably the best. I've seen, but I've also seen what what is it, Jason X, which is yeah, Jason X. I think was the first one I ever saw. Yeah, and I saw, and, I, and it didn't dissuade one. me enough from watching the <laughs> others, believe it or not. But yeah, I will say I really enjoy her character. Well, first I like I like her kind of relationship with Paul, mm-hmm. where she's kind of one upping him. She's like a lot smarter than him and makes him kind of <laughs> yeah. dumb. like that, that's that's a fun little relationship. Like when they play chess and he thinks he's got her, but then she's like, nah, checkmate, bitch. <laughs> and I mean, like that stuff's fun, and the little child child psychology stuff. Is it kind of hackneyed? Sure, but it's something. There's yeah. a little bit of character there. So number five, likable or relatable characters, i.e., like the supporting cast. Let's see, we've got a pervert. We've got <laughs> I, Vicky and Mark are fun. That relationship, they're kind of flirting. That's that's yeah. that stuff's fine. Jeff Jeff and Sandra are kind of boring. Yeah. Sandra's like a Paul. little bit more interesting than Jeff because she's the one really interested in the Camp Blood stuff. Jeff is just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I like Paul and Ginny. Uh, so I guess we've got well, enough yeah, relatable characters. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more supporting. So Paul works here. Oh. Ginny, Ginny's separate. Ginny has her own category. All right. Follow along yes, here. Yes. Sorry. This, this <laughs> Sorry, is a sir. Formula. There's a formula, a very simple formula to all this. Terry. I mean, I don't like her for her character. Let's put it that way because she's, she doesn't really have anything to do with <laughs> I really identified with all the extras wanting to go drink, so I guess, you know, that's... Yeah, well, and there's well, we've left out Ted, who, by the way, Ted drinks more than anyone in this movie, and he doesn't get killed. Good for him. Yeah. He made it. He's a goofy, <laughs> supporting character, kind of obnoxious, he plays pranks on people, and he doesn't get killed. Good job. He might be the only character like that in the series that doesn't get killed, right? Yeah, I feel like every most other movies, like if a character shows up and has like a name and has there's like some character there, they either die or it's like the final girl and maybe her boyfriend. You know, it's like in the fifth one, like fucking everyone who breathes in that movie gets killed except for a few characters that do survive. Or it's like I don't I don't feel like there are any incidental like supporting characters who who really make it through. Number six, the music. I mean, we've got our same ki-ki-ki-ma-ma-ma thing, but I, I'm going to say the score is much better in this movie than it was in the original. I like that there's this, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like almost space sci fi e sounding. Yeah. You first yeah. hear it with the cop in the shack, 
You then hear it later when, when we get shots of the moon as Ginny's running around being chased. And then you hear it again when we go back to the shack. That little motif I like a lot. That's some really good music. But yeah, I mean, it's a similar score to the original. I mean, they're all similar scores. Would we give it a pass on the music or would we be like Oh yeah, that? absolutely. It's okay. Yeah, it's, this is one of the better scores in the series. 2, 4, and 6 to me are the scores that stand out in so much as they can stand out because they're mostly just variations on the original score. All right, number seven, The Scares. Do you think this movie has good scares or no? Uh, I'm trying to think. I was only kind of caught by two scares, and that was the cat at the beginning. The cat? Okay, not not the fridge? Not the ice pick stuff? No. I mean, because the only ones that startled me was when the cat, like, screeched and then jumped through the window. And then when, uh, after Ginny was hiding, uh, Jason punched a hole through the window to try to get at her. Yeah, that that one to me is the best one. Also, Jason through the window at the end is, like, decent, but you kind of know what's happening if you saw the first one. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's better than the stupid jump scare ending to the third one. That's, like, the worst thing ever. <laughs> but, yeah, I, yeah, the Jason punching through the window is the one that really stands out for me. I also, like, I kind of like the Jason standing on the chair when she gets out from the bed just because do, you don't... I love that. You don't see that coming. <laughs> even, even if you think, like, okay, maybe he still is here and he knows she's there, you don't expect him standing on a chair. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's great. I want to say Crazy Ralph getting garroted too is kind of neat because you you have he's like right in front of a pole and you would have no reason to believe that there's someone right behind him and that that's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, you would have no reason to believe that like a six five dude who weighs like two hundred fifty pounds can hide behind a pole. All right, so number eight for me is the fun factor, and this is mainly at least for me because this is the enjoyment I get out of some of these movies is like i want to see characters who just for the longest time don't know they're in a horror movie and they're just like <laughs> asshole teens just like hanging out and i want to see that stuff because i want i like the, the contrast of that's going on it's like a peaceful almost like a teen comedy and then boom then it becomes a horror movie and we get some of that we get i mean this is this is where the ass close-ups are important right this is where scott being a little <laughs> pervert who's trying to use uh, Muffin the dog to get closer to to Terry. Like, th this is where this stuff really pays off. Yeah. We don't get much of it. It's really just, other than that, it's kind of just, it's that. And then it's like Jeff and Sandra kind of wandering off to explore Camp Blood, which that stuff's just like, whatever. It's mostly this is the Scott and Terry stuff. We get skinny dipping for literally no reason, which oh, that's we get always it. fun. We get a bit of music at a bar, somebody playing an electric guitar and a 12-string guitar in the background. I guess oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, and then there's also, like, Ted is kind of funny. Yeah. A little bit. So, the last and, I would argue, least important category for a Friday the 13th movie. Number nine, the atmosphere. Does this movie have any atmosphere whatsoever? Because, <laughs> don't get me wrong, most of them don't. At least most of them, you kind of have to argue that they do. Like, these are, these are not atmospheric horror movies, you know? Yeah, you know, I'd say this probably has, like, less atmosphere than the first one. I agree. I'm thinking mainly the rain, right? Because it it rains heavily in both films. Yeah. In the second yeah. half, towards the end, in the in in both instances, the rain actually lets up for the climax. But everything leading up to that, it's it's raining heavily. In the first one, the rain had a big impact. It had a big impact on the movie and on the characters. It kept Steve Christie from being able to actually get back and help people out. It it kind of made everyone uneasy. 
And I mean, the, the rain was a big part of it's kind of like the only atmosphere maybe you could say that that movie had. But here it's just kind of like it, it doesn't really matter that it's raining. Well, I, I would say kind of building off your your point on the first movie that the atmosphere of of um, what would you call it? seclusion, secludedness, isolation. Yeah, isolation. There we go. That's the word that was very prominent. And I think because there's only one vehicle in that movie, right? And the can't like the lead no, camp I counselor mean, well, guy had it. You get. No, Steve's car and Kevin Bacon's car. Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, then in this one, like people are having fun in town, and people show up with like a big pickup truck with like giant tires and a crappy little VW. I don't know. It just felt not as isolated as the first one. Again, stairs. Had we seen more of that, <laughs> could have could have worked here. So I think we're pretty much done with Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Not, of course, done with the Friday the Thirteenth series, which I'm sure we'll get back to that, but. Jim, you want to get us started on the next movie? So, Patrick, our second movie for tonight is The Abominable Dr. Fibes from 1971, a British horror comedy starring several people, uh, most of whom I don't know, when, and I don't know if they went on to do something else. I recognize a few people in this movie. There, there are two Bond connections in this movie. I don't know if you caught either of them. I probably didn't, because the only okay. person I really knew was Vincent Price. All right, well, Fibes' assistant is what is it like volnavia or volnavia something like yeah, that yeah she is one of the and i mean this is i wouldn't have known this unless i clicked on her name on wikipedia but she was one of the people to, uh at like the resort and on her majesty's secret service she's one of like, the <laughs> oh, hypnotized really? girls i get i guess i assume wow. i mean i saw she's in that movie and i'm like oh she's probably one of them huh and then the other one and the more significant one is fives's wife is caroline monroe who is one of the all-time great beauties in movies she's like uh she's a lot of like british horror movies around this t- time she's in dracula ad 1972 stuff like that um <laughs> captain chronos vampire hunter and then also <laughs> slaughter high she's the like the 40 year old woman <laughs> in, in slaughter high because that came out way <laughs> later than this yeah no she was um she's the helicopter pilot in the spy who loved me who it's, it's not a big she does not have a big role in that movie but arguably the most attractive woman ever to be featured in a bond movie huh and she's got she's in it for like two minutes is it wow but she's fives wife here and she she might have more screen time in in uh the bond movie than she does in this actually oh i bet she certainly moves around more in the bond movie than this one yes anyway oh there's also terry thomas is in there's a couple other names in here terry thomas is another He's one of the doctors. Terry Thomas is in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. He's like the one British guy in it. Uh, who He's like one of the few people in that movie that I like, when I first saw it, I didn't recognize from something else. Huh. I was like, so what did that guy do? Because everyone in that movie is like this huge legend in comedy. Maybe Terry Thomas was a big name in British comedy. Maybe he just did that in this. I don't know. Yeah, again, I don't know any of these names. <laughs> Other than Vincent Price from Thriller, of course, and Scooby-Doo. Okay, well, uh, is is that all the people we should know? I think that's more than we should know. I feel like <laughs> Vincent Price and Carol Monroe kind of the only ones that matter. And because they're, yeah. they're probably the only ones who will appear in other movies that we do. By the way, I was shocked to learn that Vincent Price died in like 1993 or something. I thought he died in the 80s. Well, he's in Edward Scissorhands. That's like his last movie. That's 1990. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. So Dr. Fibes is this revenge horror comedy where i mean i'll let you take the plot away but this is where vincent price wants to kill a bunch of people and he kills them in elaborate ways 
Two years later, 1973, he makes the film Theater of Blood, where he does the exact same thing. But in this, he's a presumably dead Shakespearean actor who wants to take vengeance on everyone who didn't give him uh, some kind of critics award. (laughs) And he kills them in ways inspired by Shakespeare plays. And that movie's incredible. It's I actually it's a better version of this movie, again, because the plot is better. It's I think it's better. It's yeah, it's good. We'll, we'll do it at some point, probably. Okay, good. Okay, so for this, we open with a hooded figure tickling the ivories, as it were. Uh, he's playing the organ. He's giving us a great organ solo. Uh, the figure then descends the stairs that from like his organ loft. He turns this crank, which makes a bunch of animatronic musicians play. Like it's this really weird set. Yes. Yeah, so how would you would you describe this almost as like an Art Deco kind of thing? I would. Yeah. It's that uh, transition from like Art Nouveau to like Art Deco. I think it's supposed to take place in 1925. This movie. Yeah. Which I was wondering, like, why is this a period movie? There's no reason for it. Like, this could easily just be set in the modern day. Why isn't it? There might... I don't understand. And there might be one reason for it at the very end, because I looked this up and I was shocked to learn this. I don't think the filmmakers knew this or cared about it, but they might have. But I'll tell you at the end, because it only comes up at the end. Okay. Yeah, so very strange set. Well, the the set's the least strange thing about it. I mean, the guy's got like a <laughs> band of animatronic puppets. Yeah. I mean, that's the real weird stuff. Playing like, the drum, the, the pianos, yeah. But he starts dancing with, with this woman who's wearing a very kind of like Star Trek-esque costume. You know what I mean? Like it's like something Kirk would <laughs> fall in love with on a planet. He gets this birdcage and he lowers it down to a waiting car where it's then buckled to the car and this hooded figure slides in the back and his female driver and him drive away. So we're then shown a man laying comfortably in bed and he turns the light out and he rolls over. But unbeknownst to him, his skylight is opened and this birdcage is lowered (laughs) and then taken out. And the man in bed is woken up to a kind of fluttering noise. (laughs) This is my favorite scene. It's so stupid. And it's a bunch of fox bats, which are like the most harmless bats. I think they're, I think they eat fruit and they're really cute. And you get this close up of a fox bat, like licking its mouth as it's crawling up this guy's chest and he's freaking out. The hooded figure, while this is going on, has returned home and he has placed this necklace with like an amulet on it over a mannequin and he burns the face off of this mannequin. Yeah, it's like a wax... Yeah, thing, right. I thought it was butter at first, but yeah, it's definitely wax. I assume it's wax, which may or may not be a reference to House of Wax, a Vincent Price movie. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. <laughs> but the next day, this butler walks in to his employer's room and finds him dead. So the cops are called and they see that his body has been quote unquote shredded. He has been shredded to death and drained of blood by these bats. The main detective, Detective Trout, is pondering how a bunch of tropical bats got into this man's London townhouse. While another detective on the scene describes a similar kind of crime where another doctor was found dead in his home, but this time in a library and he'd been stung to death by like hundreds of bees and he was covered in boils. Yeah. So Detective Trout decides that this kind of warrants a a bit more investigation. We then see who I can safely call Dr. Fibes now because we see him walking right. past a drum kit with his name on it. This, like, Dr. Fibes clockwork band or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that he named these guys, too. <laughs> we, we then see this Dr. Fibes applying a prosthetic nose and ears before leaving his house to go to a mask party, which I really like this scene. And oh, once frog, he gets, yeah. yeah, once he gets there, he <laughs> this is probably the weirdest scene in the movie. And this is yeah, plenty of I don't get of it at scenes. all, but it's great. 
but he hands this like beautiful frog mask to this guy uh one dr hargrave yeah it's gorgeous it's It's, like covered in mask yeah but it's like covered in shiny stuff on like rhinestones i just love shiny mask beautiful (laughs) no one will wear this (laughs) this doctor dr hargrave puts on this frog mask and he asks dr fibes to clasp it for him and this is kind of like a device from saw where (laughs) the clasp just tightens and tightens uh eventually crushing his head in the mask and he falls down this flight of stairs at this mask party in front of all these people which by the way this flight of stairs is the only thing in this (laughs) in this building like on this set did you notice that like there's no oh yeah like room around him it's just a set of stairs well, and I like that you mentioned that this is like a saw trap because I don't know if this character was an inspiration or if this movie was an inspiration for Saw, mm-hmm. but it definitely feels like it, right? I mean, we get yeah, very absolutely. Saw-y toward at the end. Yeah, but I like I like Fibes. I love Fibes as a character. He's he he's like Jigsaw from the Saw movies, but with more theatricality, with like a more sense of like grandeur. He's he's like a, a cross between Jigsaw and like a Bond villain. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of like a cross between Jigsaw and the Phantom of the Opera. He's all about, Oh, like... well, I mean, yes. Eventually, eventually we get very phantom to me, <laughs> but that wasn't really what I was I was focusing on. But yes, you're right. I do understand your theatricality, though. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you. I mean, he's he's got a band of <laughs> animatronic, like... It's so bizarre. Also, his yeah, I mean, car... I if that's not theatrical, I don't know what is. Also, his car, I like the blinds on his car have, like, his silhouette or his profile. Oh, yeah, he's, like, painted in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the point of that? <laughs> so, yeah, so this Dr. Hargraves falls down the stairs after being crushed, after his head's crushed. Dr. Fibes heads home and hangs another necklace around another mannequin and torches its face off. We then have a third doctor who is targeted. I guess technically a fourth doctor. This is such a weird scene. His housekeeper, she's heading out for the night. This doctor decides to watch a scandalous film on a crank projector, which I love. And it's just a woman dancing with a snake. And he's really into it. He's like sucking down brandy and cranking this projector like <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. But his housekeeper returns unexpectedly. And because uh, this is a horror comedy, there's a bit of uh, goofiness here where she's like, oh, you're a very bad boy. You're very naughty. He's like, oh, am I? And she's like, well, you didn't eat your dinner I left out for you. He goes, oh, thank you. And she points to the screen, which is kind of strung across the door. She's like, and what's this? He goes, oh, it's this newfangled thing on the market to keep out drafts. And she's like, oh, oh, OK. This doctor gets back to <laughs> back to shenanigans and we see Dr. Fibes pull up outside. Fibes' female henchman, who is... What's your name again? What, what's the actress's name? Uh, we haven't mentioned that. Uh, Virginia North is the actress's name. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought she was one of the ones you mentioned. The, the character's name is like Volnavia. Volnavia. I think they say Volnavia. Yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, so that's fine. But yes, so she makes her way up to Dr. Longstreet's room uh, where she kind of seduces him and ties him to a chair as... Yeah, and this is Terry Thomas of It's a Man, 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 Man World fame. Okay, yeah. Guy's got the little Michael Strahan teeth kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Then Dr. Fibes enters the room and proceeds to draw blood by the bottle from this Dr. Longstreet. While this is going on, though, Trout has a hunch that the dead doctors are all connected in some way. And it turns out that they had all worked for a Dr. Vesalius. Is that how you say it? Vesalius? I think so. Probably. Oh, no. We were talking about actors who we should be familiar with. 
this is Joseph Cotton. I forgot about this. Joseph oh. Cotton is in the greatest movie of all time. He's in Citizen Kane. He's the main character <laughs> of Citizen Kane because he's he's the journalist who's investigating the why he said Rosebud, why Rosebud was his last words. So technically, he's the protagonist of that, even though we obviously think of Charles Foster Kane because the story is all told in flashback. Well, there you go. There's another big name dad to this movie. Yeah, it's so weird seeing him in this like silly, very, very silly movie. Yeah, oh, something something extremely silly I forgot to mention was that like all the cops are kind of inept except for the main detective and his sidekick. You know, yeah. like one cop at the first crime scene that we see, he's on top of the wardrobe on his hands and knees with a magnifying glass. I don't know what the budget of this was, but did you, I mean, you must have seen this, but did you see the um, fishing line <laughs> attached to the fake bat? when the butler opened the door yeah i this is like that kind of a this movie is from that caliber of horror also i addendum to make i was incorrect joseph cotton i mean he is in citizen kane he's not the journalist he is kane's good friend and fellow i mean he i guess he's a journalist but a journalist in the flashbacks not the journalist trying to find out why his last word was rosebud so a key player in that film nonetheless still big name in this film So Trout figures out that all these doctors have been connected to one specific doctor, Dr. Fesalius. So Trout decides to pay this doctor a visit. He's trying to figure out why these doctors are being targeted, but before he can come to any kind of conclusion, he gets a call that Dr. Longstreet has been found dead. On the arrival at Longstreet's house, Trout finds that the body's drained of blood completely. There's all these bottles of blood put on the mantle in front of like a Virgin Mary statue or something. And they find an amulet on the floor with a Hebrew symbol. This amulet that they find are, is, pardon me, similar to the other amulets that we've seen up to this point. To try to figure out what this is, Trout takes the amulet to a jeweler who made it in hopes of finding the owner. Uh, but he's just told that the owner or the person who commissioned it uh, was a tall, young, beautiful, fashionable woman. But then he heads to a synagogue where I don't I, know. I like that. I don't know what it is about that scene with, with the jeweler. That's the funniest scene in the movie to me. It's just like yeah, tonally, well, it's just funny. I mean, I don't, this is a horror comedy. I don't find it that funny. It's more silly than funny. Like not, not to the point. It's not the, the type of horror comedy that I hate, you know, where it's just like, it's just a comedy that has some violence in it. Like it's just a strange, it's got kind of a strange, unique tone, but that scene is just whoever plays the jeweler is just naturally very funny to me. I don't know. I don't know what it is about, about how he says his lines, but he's great. Yeah, he did it really well. And also in that scene when Trout is leaving, he goes, uh, Detective Pike. And he turns around and he's like, yeah, Trout. Oh, well, <laughs> that, because a few people get his name wrong. I don't find yeah. that stuff that funny. I like when this guy, because he mentions that he, she's young, beautiful, and fashionable. <laughs> yeah. He mentions that a few times. And then he's like, be sure to write down fashionable. And he's like, ah, I'll remember it. And like, like. Yeah, like it was the great. Jeweler's like so he's like so proud that he like came up with that word. He's like, "Oh, you better write that down." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trout then heads to a synagogue to speak to a Jewish priest. I don't know what you'd call a Jewish priest. A rabbi, dumbass. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, I am a dumbass. Damn it. Yeah, so he goes to talk to a rabbi. Bad. That was, yeah. That's just. I mean, I, I felt bad about saying hood on the convertible earlier, but no, I'm. No, I, you're right. I I'm take the dumbass. Yeah, I take the dumbass trophy this one. But uh, yeah, so he goes to talk to a rabbi about the symbol on the amulet, and the rabbi tells him the symbol is for blood, which makes sense because, you know, uh, Longstreet's blood was completely removed from his body. 
And he also mentions that it's something to do with the plagues of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. The rabbi gives him a rundown on all the plagues. The first ones he mentions are boils, bats, frogs, and blood, which match up with what we've heard about these right. deaths so far. And to come is rats, hail, beasts, locusts, and death of the firstborn, and finally, darkness. Darkness. Which, how they tie hail into this story, not the most satisfying way. Yeah, I agree. I'm pretty I'm pretty pleased with the other deaths, but hail, it's like, really? Are we calling that hail? <laughs> I know, yeah. So Trout realizes that there are plenty more deaths to come, so he heads straight back to Vesalius's place. Vesalius has kind of gone through all these documents, and um, he's figured out which surgeries he's worked on with all these other doctors. And there's only one where nine doctors were involved, in, including Vesalius. Mm-hmm. And it was an operation on a Mrs. Victoria Fibes. What was the operation? I don't know. Do you? Well, I mean, she was dying. They don't, yeah, I don't I... think they mentioned how she was, but she was dying and they were just trying to save her. Yeah. Well, apparently she died on the operating table and her husband, Dr. Fibes, raced back to be by her side, but he drove off a cliff instead and burned to death. And he's also a, we learned this later, he's, the doctor is, he's like a doctor of theology. Yeah, which, ugh, I, uh, never mind. I'm just going to save it for the end. <laughs> he doesn't need to be that. I mean, no. don't get me wrong. Dr. Fives, the abominable Dr. Fives is a much better t- title than the abominable Mr. Fives. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, like, why does he need to be, uh, like, because really he goes back to the, his religious inspired, his biblical inspired deaths are just the plagues. Like, it's not like those are these obscure things that only a theology professor would know. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty widely taught. I'm going to save what I have to say for the end because it really annoyed me after I finished the movie. Anyway, the detectives are trying to figure out how to protect the five remaining doctors. But as they're trying to do this, another doctor is murdered by the plague of hail that you foreshadowed. And uh, Dr. Fibes, I'm not even going to get into how they stopped the car or anything, but Dr. Fibes used a snow or like ice machine. Yeah, he set it to. Yeah, yeah, he freezes them solid, and he sets it to, like, negative 100 degrees, and it's just kind of goofy. So, yeah, so this guy's frozen. Point is, takes a great stretch of imagination to say that this guy died by hail. So, the detectives are kind of at a loss, because they're like, oh my god, who's going to be killed next? We don't know. But it's Vesalius' son who kind of leads everybody to the next clue on how to... Vesalius' 35-year-old son. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I don't know who this actor is, but he just has that, like, he looks way older than, like, he's supposed to be, like, a 17, 16-year-old son. And, I mean, I'm yeah, sure he's not like actually that. 30. But if he feels, like, mid-20s trying to play younger, like, he speaks in, like, a tone of voice that's, like, you can kind of tell it's just that actor doesn't speak that in that high of a pitch normally. Yeah. And he's doing that to sound younger, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, also, I, they could have found something. At better. any rate, Joseph Cotton, at his age, should probably have a 35-year-old son. Because he's kind of old in this movie, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I, I feel like this, and I'm sure this wasn't the case. I don't know if this sort of thing even happened in, like, 70s movies, but I'm sure they're like, okay, we got Joseph Cotton. And then they show him the actor that they got to play his son, and he's like, what? Are you, what are you <laughs> saying about how old I am? And he's like, you make him, get me an 18-year-old son, get me a teenage son. But they, did, but they already hired this other guy, so they're like, oh, we'll give him a different haircut. and We'll make him wear a sweater him. vest. 35 year old son (laughs) invaluable though uh for for the plot he is telling his dad over a game of chess 
that actually I guess it's after the game of chess he he wants to play his dad a piece on the piano and his dad says oh no 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 play it for me tomorrow and he goes okay that's fine that's great dad and he starts kind of launching into this story about how this owner of like a music shop is a really cool dude he thought he was a bore but he's super cool because he knows all the greats all the great pianists including Dr. Fibes. So Vesalius goes to this music shop and learns from the owner that Fibes is still apparently a great patron. So now Vesalius tells Trout this and the two of them decide to take a trip to Highgate Cemetery where Fibes is supposedly interred uh, with his wife and they inspect the coffins in the mausoleum and they discover that there are in fact ashes in Fibes' coffin but they may be of his chauffeur and when they open his wife's casket there's nobody at all. So they're like oh my god Fibes is still alive. So Fibes has made his next attack. He's made his next move and... <laughs> He fills the plane of this other doctor. I can't pronounce his name. I don't think anybody can in the movie. That's the joke. But he fills this guy's plane with rats. So this guy gets up in the air, and then rats just start crawling all over him. <laughs> huge causes... rats, too. They're not like... It's not our Friday the 13th Part 2 rat. These are like your African rats that are like the size of rabbits. Yes, like I don't, absolutely. I don't know the actual species names, but it's like something... Not your, not your everyday rat. This is also kind of a funny scene because they try to make these things like look so menacing. And like, I'm not afraid of rats or anything, but they cut to a couple I close am. ups. I'm, <laughs> I'm oh, done really? with the scene. Let's move on. No, <laughs> I found that this scene is hard to watch for me because okay. I know like they have like close ups. Of, well, I guess I say move on, but I'm going to explain what, what, what <laughs> just bothered me about this. But like, because they have like close ups of the rats like eating things. And it's like, listen, obviously they're not eating human flesh, they're eating just whatever they gave them. But there's just, like, these, like, stringy and, like, disgusting and, like, bloody <laughs> yeah. things that they're eating. And yeah. it's, like, to me, that was, like, that was enough to be, like, okay, they're just eating that dude's tendon in the neck or something. Like, it was enough for me. This this scene worked for me quite well, and that's why I hate it. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. So this guy crashes his plane, dies. Fibes has killed another one. Now, my favorite scene in this movie is coming up directly after this, where Trout has said, you know, enough is enough. We're going to place police escorts on every single one of these remaining doctors, and he's going to personally escort one of them to the countryside for a few days. And on opening the door of this club to let this doctor leave, this giant brass unicorn comes flying through the door, and the horn <laughs> pierces this man to the wall and kills him instantly. I thought this was the funniest scene in the movie. They have to get this unicorn head and the guy's body off the wall. They're trying to figure out which way the threads on the unicorn horn go to twist him off the wall. And there's like this curmudgeon old British guy reading the paper in this club. And you can see this the dead man's feet <laughs> like kind of twirling around behind him. So I guess at this point there's only two people left. And that is Dr. Vesalius and this other doctor who is now like a nurse or something. And she's being holed up in this hospital. And Dr. Vesalius is there with Detective Trout. But unbeknownst to any of them, Fibes is already in this hospital and he's drilling a hole <laughs> in the floor above this nurse's room to pour like Brussels sprout juice gunk all over and then release, and, and then the, um, release a, a bunch of locusts on her, which eat her face all the way down to her skull, which is a pretty <laughs> stupid death. While all that's going on, though, Vesalius is trying to figure out, he's thinking, I'm going to be the one who's left for the end. But he can't carry out the plague of, of death of the firstborn son because my older brother's already dead. So how's he going to do that? Oh, this this made me want to punch him in the face. Like, <laughs> how can you be so dumb? I that know. You can't realize that you have a son. Exactly. You know, who's 40. No, but I, I, do, I think this is because he had that one scene with the son earlier. And it was clear he and his son aren't super close. And so I think that's they're trying to like 
I don't know. It just, I don't buy it, right? But I think they're trying to say that, like, oh, he wasn't thinking of his son because they weren't. Like, no, you would think of your son in this in this scenario when you know there's a psychopath going out there trying to kill someone's firstborn. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I know. I was I was rolling my eyes at the, uh, at the screen when this happened. So Vesalius runs home. His son isn't there, but he gets a call from Fibes who's playing the organ and then tells him, you have until midnight and you have to show up alone. If you show up after midnight or show up with people, I'm going to kill your son. So Vesalius heads straight over after knocking out Trout. And this is where we get this kind of Saw-like influence of, of for, for Saw, possibly. I don't know. Oh, de- I mean, yeah, I don't know about an influence, but definitely something that the two have in common, at least. Yeah, because it's this pretty morbid game where Fibes has set this thing up where he has implanted a key <laughs> near his son's heart. And Vesalius has to cut him open, remove the key, and unlock him from the stretcher that he's on before a vat of acid is is leaked onto the boy's face. Yeah, uh, and he has got, six minutes. I think to eight do so. minutes or six minutes because that's yeah. exactly as much time as his wife had before she died when she was on the operating table. Yes. Yeah. So Vesalius sets to work almost immediately while Fibes retreats to this coffin. <laughs> By the way, I don't think we've specified how Fibes talks yet because oh, in yeah. the car accident that he had, he lost the ability to speak. And, and if you watch him, his face never like moves, like his expression never changes or anything like that. And he never opens his mouth, even though he does talk and he like plugs this thing in from his throat to like various objects around his house that allows him to talk and i really love how vincent price plays this because again the face is very very still the muscles in his face not much movement but you can see his throat his Mm -hmm. the the muscles in his neck are moving like crazy when he talks because obviously all this stuff is just voiceover that's coming in but it but it he really convinces you that he is performing these words even though they're not coming out of his mouth at the time and anyways the reason is he lost his ability to speak with the car accident doctors said he would never be able to speak again or whatever but he used his superior knowledge of <laughs> acoustics yeah <laughs> to hook himself up to like phonographs basically Dude, I, yeah. and so he can when talk, i heard which, that that's a really fun fun idea i like that I, I'll be honest, I rolled my eyes again pretty hard. No, come like, on. My, I, I used my superior knowledge of acoustics to make myself talk again, and you're like, okay. Here's the thing. If you want to make him a doctor, fine. Make him a doctor of that. Don't exactly, make him a theological yeah. exactly. doctor, I guess. The, don't make him a theologian. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and also, I should point out that Fibes' face is very badly burned because of the crash, which is why he wears these prosthetics, and... Near the well, end, you see him. We're rip- getting to the, to the wonderful reveal of that. You had to fucking ruin it. Oh, sorry. You're right. Well, I, I, it was coming up in a second, anyways. Because <laughs> that's awesome. Well, here. So, <laughs> let me get to the reveal. So, Vesalius starts saving his son. He starts cutting into his son, and Fibes comes down to this operating room, and he says, "You know, I'm giving you six minutes because that's how long my wife had on the table, as we pointed out." And he said. When this acid touches your son's face, it's going to make his face look like mine. And he rips off the prosthetics and it's this gray skull essentially underneath. Uh, and you can- yeah, it's this is your Phantom of the Opera moment, which you alluded to earlier. This is actually super, super similar to something that came out like around the same time. The television series Night Gallery. Not that great. It had its moments. It's your 
Rod Serling follow-up to The Twilight Zone that was from, mm. like, 1970 to 72. There was an—because they did, like, a couple stories per episode, and eventually they, like, didn't have enough time for a, for a half hour or for an hour or whatever, and there, so they would just do, like, two or three-minute short comedic things. And in one of those— it's called The Phantom of What Opera. You can probably find it on YouTube <laughs> if you're curious. It's not that great. To my knowledge, however, it is the first truly, it's it's the role that made Leslie Nielsen a comedian because we all know he was a dramatic actor before that. <laughs> but he's in this and he he's playing the organ. He's like, he's the Phantom of the Opera, right? And this woman uh, comes up to him and pulls at his mask or whatever. And it he's got a creepy face, kind of like this. And then it's like, okay, so it's just like the Phantom of the Opera. And then she pulls away her face, which is like a normal, beautiful face. And it's like, oh, that's a mask too. And they both look alike. And that's kind of all that was, all that that was. But it reminds me a lot of Fives here. It looks very similar. But that's, to my knowledge, you don't get Airplane. You don't get the Naked Gun without the Phantom of what opera? Oh, my God. It changed the course of his career, I think, maybe. I don't know. I think he still made the Poseidon Adventure after that, so probably not. So Fibes leaves. He decides to retreat to this coffin where we see his embalmed wife. Yeah. While he's preparing to kind of spend the rest of eternity with her, his hench lady, she's like breaking up the place, tearing down pictures and knocking things over. She makes her, I guess she's kind of cornered in this operating room uh, when the detectives show up. And they show up just Mm -hmm. as Vesalius gets the key out and unlocks his son before acid starts falling on his face. And the hench lady, she is (laughs) unfortunately standing right under this acid trap and she gets burned. Yeah. I wanted a lot more out of that character, the hench lady. I wanted there to be something like, who is she? I don't know, like make it Fibes' like secret daughter or something. Like, it's just like, who is she? Why is she there? What's she doing? Yeah, all she does is play (laughs) the violin. I don't need a lot. But again, I'm thinking of Theater of Blood, which is the superior Vincent Price horror comedy elaborate revenge murder story. And there is a female assistant in that too. And that character is just much more interesting. So, <laughs> Yeah, I bet. I bet that whole movie is much more interesting than this. So Fibes crawls into this coffin with his wife and he inserts a needle into his arm and he starts draining the blood from his body and it's being replaced by embalming fluid. And he just lays down. The lid of this coffin closes and uh, the detective... Or and then the it turns over when the organ comes down. So it's like it's set up so that anyone entering his secret role room here with the coffin would never find it because in order to enter that you have to go down through the organ and as that lowers the coffin the glass coffin again (laughs) vladimir lenin slash bruce lee (laughs) burial here oh no uh, flips over and so that it's just like the floor and it's the floor that has like a little sun moon earth kind of thing it's kind of got like a solar eclipse motif on it which is the last play that's the darkness yeah but which, which Fives experiences the darkness. That's what, I guess, what we're going for here. Yeah, so at the end, ten people are killed, nine doctors. Well, actually, nine people are killed, eight doctors, and Fives himself. But he has committed all the plagues of Egypt on various people, including himself. And they say, oh, well, where's Fibes? I can't seem to find him. Oh, but I'm sure he's making good on that last plague. And then it ends. And we're looking at the sun, moon, and earth all lined up as, as darkness. Now, yeah. Patrick, now you might say, why would they set this in 1925? As I yes. said myself, and, and as you that. said at the beginning. Well, did you know that there was a solar eclipse that affected Britain in 1925? No, I didn't. 
And, and I, I also don't. I feel like you can just write it into your movie that a solar <laughs> eclipse occurs <laughs> in 1969. And I know. I know. Five. Who cares? Like, exactly. It not... doesn't. It doesn't matter. But it's like maybe I. I have no clue why they would have said it in 1925. Especially because here I'm not one to complain about this kind of things. But there's a couple songs in this movie that people sing that yes were not released or written prior to 1925. There's there's the, the like so i mean what's what's the point why why are we doing this yeah just have this set in the modern day it doesn't matter well so you know that might be an insight into how you feel about this movie but tell me anyways patrick how do you feel about the abominable dr fibes i like it although it's a it's a movie that i enjoy the character i enjoy the vincent price role more than i enjoy the movie i kind of wish the character had a better movie to work with i.e theater of blood (laughs) um (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, it's a great role for Vincent Price. He does a lot with it, too. Again, I love the way he does that thing with his throat when he's not actually moving his mouth or his face, but he's still communicating so well with the voiceover when he's just staring at photos of Caroline Monroe, which is something I do before going to bed every night, so <laughs> I can relate to that. No, he's he's great. Yeah, I, I wish the movie was better. I, the bumbling cops... I'm kind of over it after a while. It takes a while for the movie to really get going, too. The f- before we truly learn about Fives, but I feel like the movie doesn't really get going until the other characters learn about Fives, almost. Really, with the um, the discovery of, of the pendant or whatever, the, 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 the jeweler scene is when the movie comes alive for me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'll agree with me on this. It feels like they had an idea. They were like, we want a movie to be about a guy whose wife died on the operating table and he's getting back at doctors for her death. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. good idea for a movie. Hey, you know what would be awesome? If he played the organ. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, that's kind of dark and mysterious and moody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know what else would be cool? What, after they've, they've like shot half the movie? Like, hey, we should go back and shoot scenes with like these pendants, like these necklaces that he wears and puts on these mannequins mm-hmm. and burns the face off of people. It's like, yeah, but what should they be? Oh, well, I don't know, man. What do you think they should be? I don't know. Is there like motivation for the character other than his wife? Yeah, I guess so. Why do we have these crazy deaths? Oh, the plagues of Egypt, of course. That's it. Oh, but how would he know about the plagues of Egypt? Oh, he's a doctor in theology? (laughs) You know, like... Yeah, here's the thing. Here's, Here's how you fix that. Because he's he's this expert pianist, organist, whatever. He's this uh, expert in acoustic. Make him a doctor in that. Make him a professor of music. This, yeah. Because he is one of the greats. We learn that. Make his wife the theologian. Yes. Yeah. And make him th- that that because as the movie is, the plagues of Egypt has no real connection with the wife. It's just something that he chooses to do. Make that connected to the wife. And maybe make the, some of the mystery, solving the mystery, come more through the wife than through just stumbling upon, oh, Dr. Fibes is, still frequents this record store or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the exact same way. And I think if they had done it like that, it would have been a much more entertaining movie uh, or maybe not even entertaining but it would have made more sense i would have yeah. rolled my yeah, eyes I mean, less the way it is here you have a bunch of kind of semi-disjointed ideas that don't always work well together i mean no movie with vincent price killing people in megalomaniacal over-the-top ways is going to be all bad mm-hmm. whether those ways are from shakespeare plays or whether they're the plagues of egypt you know, it's Vincent Price who can elevate any stupid ass plot you throw him into like something kind of classy. Like he pulls that off here. Yeah, it, but it's but it's just not as good as it should be or it is. You know what I mean? It, yeah. There yeah. Needs to be I know exactly else. what you mean. Yeah. And, and then the whole kind of comedy aspect 
I really only found one or two scenes like amusing. The comedy mostly doesn't work. It's yeah. it's not witty. It's just kind of goofy. It's it's like it's a lot of people getting people's names wrong, and it's like that's not that might be funny like one time, or that's like funny in like a sitcom scenario mm-hmm. maybe, but not like in this plot. Yeah, and like when I heard that this was a British horror comedy, I thought, oh great, I hope there's that dry sense of British humor. As you pointed out, there's no like dry humor. It's all goofy and like stupid. Mm -hmm. And really, for all the deaths, even like the first death that we see, those fox bats, it's so stupid. (laughs) Like there's the fake bat on the string and they walk into the room and there's a bunch of fake bats. I enjoyed the skeleton face that they found covered in locusts. I did enjoy that. I I like that one, yeah. But like even like goofy things that just didn't need to be in the movie, like when um, Vincent Price does go to kill that nurse, for some reason he pulls out like a clear plastic sheet with like the body of a woman drawn on it so he can drill right through the head to see where she's laying in bed. But I'm like, just drill the fucking hole. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just so many silly things about the movie, and I can't tell if they're supposed to be comedic or serious sometimes. I don't know. So, Jim, which of these two movies do you prefer? Definitely Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah, I gotta agree with you. I, uh, Fives wasn't as good as I remembered it, and Friday the 13th Part 2 was a little better than I remembered it, and I think even in my memory prior to watching these two, I would have already had Friday the 13th Part 2 as better <laughs> than Fives, so it certainly is now, you know what I mean? That's not, again, that's not to say that, like, Fives is necessarily a terrible movie, because Vincent Price does carry it, and he's definitely the best part oh, of yeah, it. Oh yeah, no, I, I like Fives, it's just not great. Yeah. Not that Friday the 13th Part 2 is great either. I just think it's better. But now, Patrick, do you think this would make for a good double feature? That's a great question. I honestly, I don't know. I'm thinking I'm thinking this through on the fly here. Okay, we've got five minutes of revenge in the first movie. And then we've got an entire movie on revenge. We've got weird obsession with dead people in both of them. I'm just thinking through the similarities. <laughs> like, okay, we've got... We've got Jason's mom's head, the the reoccurring thing, and then we've got photos of Carolyn Monroe, and then eventually Caroline Monroe embalmed in a glass communist coffin. Like, okay, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say no. I guess I guess you could maybe say it's the tones. I'm gonna say the personalities of the movies just don't gel. You know, the first movie it's like this kind of largely stripped down, and it's just like it's a slasher movie and not much more. It's just that. And then this other one, it's like, it's not stripped down. It's this revenge horror movie that's also very over the top and goofy. And it's just like, that movie has a lot of personality. Friday the 13th Part 2 doesn't have that much personality, even though I think it's a better movie. It's just a weird thing. But I'm curious to hear your thought because you're going to say it's a bad double feature. So, well, actually, (laughs) what do you got? Actually, my friend, uh, I was, I mean, you're right. I was going to say it's, (laughs) it's a good double feature though. what? (laughs) <laughs> no, listen. Originally, when I sat down to think about this, I thought, oh, I think it's a fine double feature. I think you have this kind of goofy, strange revenge horror movie mixed with just like a classic slasher. But then the more I was thinking about it, I was like, no, Dr. Fibes is like a little over the top. It's a little confusing. Like there's too much shit just in the story that either doesn't need to be there or they could have like structured it in a different way. Like, mm-hmm. like, like we were talking about with the theology stuff. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it just doesn't work because you're right. I think not even necessarily like tonally they're too different. It's just Fibes is just something else. And Friday the 13th Part 2 is just a slasher. Yeah, there is potential, I'll say, in pairing a Friday the 13th movie with a movie that has like a lot going on with its character. I'm not saying Fibes is like a deep character, but there's something to him. 
there's virtually nothing to Jason. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, there's more in Friday the Thirteenth Part Two to Jason's character than there is in any other movie in the series. So, <laughs> so imagine like like there is kind of maybe some fun in the contrast of of like vibes this over the top character who's he's dealing with grief and he's dealing with his professor of theology duties and he's dealing <laughs> with his expertise in acoustics yeah and he's got his animatronic band like it's just like what is this like jason just kills like that's all he does like, yeah yeah <laughs> there's there's some fun kind of in pairing those but i, I do think it's the movies don't work great together so jim would you like to hear about what we're doing next time as always all right we've got the bella lugosi 1931 Dracula from Universal Studios, as well as The Big Doll House, which is a women in prison film from 1971. You know, women in prison, we were bound to get one. It's an important <laughs> subgenre of exploitation film. It uh-huh. really is. It's actually, it's from a director we've had before. It's from Jack Hill, director of Spider Baby. Oh my goodness. Which I didn't even know until like <laughs> until I, uh, like a few hours ago. It's like, oh, like where's that name familiar? Oh yeah, that's the <laughs> Spider-Baby guy. So Sid Haig's in this one as well. I don't know if any of the other actors from Spider-Baby are. I think Lon Chaney Jr. might have been dead by the time this, this came out just a few years ago. <laughs> oh. He was looking old in Spider-Baby. Let's, he was, yeah. He looked like he, he just wanted to sit down. So Dracula... The Big Doll House. That's what we've got up. I don't believe either of them are available on streaming that I've seen, but I'll tweet about if I notice that one of them is. So yeah, that's that. We'll uh, catch you next time. 